You're listening to TIP. I'm at the airport, you know, getting ready to load on the plane. And uh, the guy comes out and he's like, hey, do you see that jet over there? I'm like, yeah. He goes, that's a Citation 10. He goes, I'm like, yeah, I, I can tell that. I, I, I know my jets, you know, you, you can see my jets on the screen up here behind me. I said, uh, I was like, okay. Like, I'm, I'm, he goes, do you know who owns that? And I was like, well, well no. Like, I'm, I'm, I don't know people who buy, who own these random jets in Columbia, South Carolina. And then he goes, oh, that's the guy who owns the local Frank's car washes in town. I was like, you got to be kidding me. In this week's episode, I talk with Dan Hanford about how the current interest rate environment and tightening capital markets are impacting the real estate industry, how this new environment has changed his acquisition strategy, what assets will be most stable in a downturn, how to do proper due diligence on a syndicator, what markets he's focused on what trends he foresees for 2023, and much, much more. We even get into a fun conversation about car washes and owning jets. Dan Hanford is the managing partner of PassiveInvesting.com, founder of Multifamily Investor Nation, co-host of the Tough Decisions for Entrepreneurs podcast, and a successful serial entrepreneur. It's always great to catch up with Dan and get his views on what he's seeing unfold in today's rapidly changing market. And one quick housekeeping note before we get into today's episode with Dan. Next week is going to be my last week as the full-time host of this show here. Just like we did with Millennial Investing, I took a step back as the host and handed it off to Clay Fink, who has now handed it off to Rebecca. Next week is going to be my last interview with the Twitter famous Moses Kagan. And then after that, we will have Casey Miracle, who is going to be hosted by your new host, Patrick Donnelly. So Next week, you will hear my voice here as the host. The week after that, don't be surprised if you hear the voice of a new host. That is, in fact, our new host going forward, Patrick Donnelly. I hope you guys enjoy him as the new host. As always, you can reach out to me on social media, and I will still be back hosting the show every once in a while. Not sure exactly how frequent that will be, but every once in a while, I will be popping back on this show and Millennial Investing as the guest host, if you will. All right. Now, without further delay, let's get into this week's episode with Dan Hanford. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and with me today, I have Dan Hanford. Dan, welcome back. Glad to be here, Rob. Looking forward to, to, to kind of talking and kind of giving, giving updates here, but uh, looking forward to sharing with your audience. Been a little bit since we caught up. How are things going? How have you been? Oh, it's going really well. So uh, definitely uh, a lot of different things happening in 2022, and uh, a lot of things are going to be happening here in 2023 coming up. and. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of uh, uh, unknowns that are going to be happening. So it's, but it's been, it's been great. We've definitely, as a group uh, at PassiveInvesting.com, been able to grow this year, which has been great. Um, we're not really so sure what's going to happen in 2023. Uh, it's still a big question mark, which I think is a big question mark for everybody. Uh, but we're still uh, uh, diligently, you know, underwriting deals and and uh, and looking at uh, different projects to see what might be a good fit for our investors. 
it seems like we always kind of connect around these interesting times. I think the first time we connected was during COVID. Then we now we're talking during an interesting time now with financing, interest rates. Talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing in the real estate industry right now. In the beginning of 2022, what we saw was a lot of brokers still were pitching to sellers that they could get these really high premiums for selling their assets. And that kind of trickled, trickled over from 2021. And so as we moved into 2022, these unrealistic expectations were set by the brokers to these sellers. And so once we start looking at deals and underwriting them and putting offers on it, we just can't get there with the current debt market. And in Q1, I would say it was a little bit easier. But as we moved into Q2 and started seeing the Fed doing some drastic and rising of of their uh, raising of their interest rates, definitely saw a a tremendous amount of of volatility in pricing uh, from from almost day by day and week by week. Um, And so it's been really challenging. And I would say that towards the end of 2022, we have seen several of our of the of the sellers starting to reset their expectations. I think it's because the brokers are not setting unrealistic expectations to the sellers. Now there are still sellers out there that are unrealistic. Um and I, when I say unrealistic, it doesn't mean that they're it's negative or it's bad. Like we had four deals this year that we tried to sell in 2022 and we ended up not selling them because the assets are performing well, but we couldn't get the strike prices that we were wanting for that these brokers were telling us that we could get to be able to achieve our returns earlier and early instead of waiting the full five years for the, for the um, full cycle, one kind of lifespan of the, of the project. And so we put them out to market, you know, they did the tours and did the bids, the call for offers, and we just couldn't get there. And so we were one of those unrealistic expectations from a seller's perspective, but it was based on the broker telling us that they could get a certain number and us only putting it out to market because if we can get those numbers now, then we'll go ahead and sell. But if not, we'll just hold on to it and, and wait till the, on the, until we're on the other end of this kind of recession that's impending right, uh, that's pending right now um, in the market. And so we've definitely seen a kind of a shift in a migration of seller or un, uh, resetting their expectations for, for pricing. Um, we've even had some projects that we have got under contract. We had one that uh, we were able to retrade it. It was a large, like, you know, $80 million project, but we were able to retrade that deal because of some of the changes in the debt market and some of the things that we found during due diligence. And uh, we were able to retrade that at a little over $6 million reduction in the purchase price, which to us is like unheard of. Like when we, when we realized that we had to offer, we had to like go back and retrade for, you know, more than 6 million. You know, I was like, guys, this deal's dead. Nothing's going to happen here. It's, it's, it's gone. Um, but that seller was getting caught with rising interest rates and their debt service was expensive and they really could not continue to pay that. And so they, they were forced to sell. And so they, because they were forced to sell, they had to reduce their offer price and we still got it and we still closed it. Um, and so those kind of projects and deals are happening and there are deals that are getting awarded to other groups and those groups can't perform. And so they're coming back to people. And so there's, there's definitely from a seller you know perspective, there's definitely some things changing and um, from an investor sentiment perspective, we've been able to raise a significant amount of capital this year. So we we raised specifically, you know, directly from our investor group, uh, a little over $290 million from our investors just this year alone. And we're sitting here in December of 2022, getting ready to wrap up the year. Um, our goal was, you know, a lot more than that, but because of the things that have happened this year, you know, in 2022, we were not able to achieve the, the, the larger goal that we wanted, but still given what's happened this year, I think we've done really well in growing, even going from last year, we raised 196 million. This year, we're at 290 million plus. Um, and then uh, moving into next year, I don't really honestly know where we're going to end up because 
we've definitely seen a, a, a shift in some of the investor sentiment towards the end of this year, um, wanting to hold on to some capital and kind of have it ready to deploy next year, just some deals that are going to come available next year. They're going to be great deals to capitalize on. Um, and so we have definitely seen that. We've, again, still been able to raise amount, a large amount of capital. I think that that investor sentiment is going to continue into, the, into 2023. And uh, we'll be able to continue to raise some some significant capital into the new year as well, as long as we can find deals that actually make sense and we can bring our investors in. What happened with that property that you saved six million dollars on? Like, what what allowed you to save six million dollars? What were the were there things wrong with the property? Was it just you knew that you had a little bit of a leverage because he was kind of in a, the seller was in a bad spot? Like, what what allowed you to get that reduction? Yeah, I would say we did not know that the seller was in a bad spot. So we didn't, we didn't use that to our advantage at all. Um, you know, hindsight's always 2020. I, I just, uh, in talking with the broker after the fact, know that that, that, that was definitely a challenge piece that was a lot that caused them to want to reduce the price. But, uh, so the biggest thing was the, the changing in the debt market since we had under, since we had got it under contract and underwrote it initially. Fed increased the rate. Our, our, our lock-in rate was higher. So the, the dynamics of the deal changed from that perspective. And then once we started doing some of our due diligence, we saw that the management side of what they were of the property was not very good. And so one of our negotiating pieces in that project was if we are going to move forward with this, we want a X reduction in the purchase price, a little over a $6 million reduction in the purchase price. And we want to go ahead and install our property management company on the property um, to manage the property during our due diligence and uh, up until we close so that we can make sure that the, the property is being managed properly. Um, and not being mismanaged because if you mismanage the property and then you get down to closing and then the lender does their, you know, additional final, final checks. And if they're not, if they're not seeing some of that significant changes or seeing that they're maintaining the occupancy, then it could kill the deal as well. They, they agreed to it and, uh, they, they, we were able to, you know, come to an agreement with, 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 with the reduction in the purchase price and then allowing our, our property management company to be able to go in there and take over operations. Is that pretty common that you guys do? Do you guys usually put PM in place before you, you acquire the deal? That's the first time we've ever done that. So you know, we've acquired since 2018, a little over $1.6 billion in assets. And that was the first time. But honestly, I would probably say that's the first time we've ever needed to do it. Because most, most operators are, are, have a decent property management company in there that can continue to maintain the operations until we take over. And then the day we take over, we install our property management company. And we just felt like we didn't feel comfortable even with a reduction in purchase price unless our property management company was in there and taking over right away. And so what would you have done? I know this, you said this is your first time you're doing it, so you might not know exactly the, how it might have played out, but what would you have done if you ended up not closing that deal and your property management team was in place? I mean, I mean I'm assuming just turn it over to the other guys again, but what would that have looked like? Yeah. So even though it was our property management company, they still had a separate agreement that they had created through with that prop, with our property management company during that transitory period. So technically, the property management company was working for the seller, not for us. But that property management company manages all of our other assets, and so them them being able to kind of come in and take it over, there was still a contract in place. So if we didn't close it, they would have still probably still maintained as the property management company uh, throughout, you know, you know till the till the next buyer came along, if you will. Is your property management team in house? Is it part of PassiveInvesting.com or is it a separate entity? It is a third-party property management company. We have considered bringing it in-house. Um, we just don't feel like we have enough assets under management for it to really make sense for us. Um, it's something that we are looking into and we have been looking into for the last couple of years. Um, and it is something we will likely do in the future. But I think that's also one of the reasons why we've been able to grow as, as well as we have is because we haven't tried to like 
water ourselves down so much that we're also trying to manage property management side of things at the same time as trying to manage and, uh, and properly asset manage our, 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 our assets, but also manage the, the money that, that the investors have entrusted in with us as well. I was talking to some other uh, founder CEOs uh, similar to your position that own companies and started companies similar to PassiveInvesting.com. And a couple of them kind of regret the property management piece so early on because it kind it felt like they pigeon held themselves to the market that they were in. Because when you get dispersed, you can't really, you know, you have to have a lot of units in one place in order for that property management company to really make sense. So I wonder if, you know, I know you guys have expanded into some different markets, so maybe that's, it's making property management a little bit challenging. There's, there's definitely a challenge that, there's definitely a hurdle there when you have your assets spread across multiple states. Um, and we do, we have, te- we have assets uh, specifically around multifamily. We have assets in, in Texas, we have assets in Tennessee, uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida. Um, so we, we are quite a bit spread out. Um, we do have a, a fairly good concentration here in the Southeast. Um, and that's that's the thing is as we grow our portfolio, we have more assets in one area. It is something that we will consider down the road. But you know, I, I think it was a, a definitely a, a wise and, and and smart move for us to not do it right out of the gate. You told us a bit about how the current conditions are impacting properties that you're acquiring right now. But what about properties you already own? What what impact is it having on it? Do you have fixed debt on those properties? So rising interest rates isn't a massive deal. Do you have some maybe five-year terms that are coming up you know, in the next couple of years and you're a little bit worried about that? Talk to us a little bit about some of the properties that you already own. Yeah. So uh, the, the nice thing is that we do have about 50% of our portfolio is in fixed rate debt. So it has not had an impact on those properties. Um, we also have about another 50% of our, of our assets that are in floating rate debt. Um, thankfully, whenever we buy a, a property and have floating rate terms, we always buy an interest rate cap, which is very, very important. You know, I've had investors already reach out that have invested with other groups that they did not buy an interest rate cap. And now this time last year where they were paying, you know, three and a half, four and a half percent, now they're upwards over 10% on some of these deals. Um, and so they're, they're having a hard time making their debt service payments. They're having to do capital calls. And it's been very challenging for a lot of people. Um, and so I, I have this seven red flags that my, my, my wife and I wrote after we, we've actually have invested in, you know, right now we have a little over 74, 75 different LP positions with about 18 different operators around the country. And as we you know, started to vet operators and look at different projects and deals, we came up with this kind of seven red flags for um, uh, passive investing. And if any of you are listening, you want a copy of that, you can go to passiveinvesting.com. And in the top right-hand corner, there's a little you know, button there that says, or a little drop down on the menu, that says Knowledge Center. If you go to the Knowledge Center there, there's a link there for you to be able to register for the red flags uh, to be able to get that article. It really helps people to be able to kind of make sure that they're placing their capital properly. And one of the things that you know we want to make sure that we do is we only invest in deals that have an interest rate cap. And that actually was not even part of the original seven red flags. I've now added an eighth one, which is make sure you don't invest with an operator that doesn't buy interest rate caps because I just assumed that everybody was smart and they would buy those interest rate caps. But what happened was, is, you know, the interest rate caps are, you have to buy them. It's like an insurance policy. And so three years ago, four years ago, you could buy a interest rate cap for 2% above your, your floor interest rate. And it might cost you, you know, 20, 30, $40,000 for the life of the policy. But, you know, as the fed starts to increase their rate, of course, that increases their risk for the insurance company. And, 
you know, now you're lucky to get one for, you know, less than seven figures. I mean, that's, that's how much difference they are in price. And so some of these operators had to make a, a, an, an executive decision, um, albeit in the, probably not the smartest one or the wisest one to not bring in additional capital and not buy the interest rate cap. And now they're caught um, in a position where they may lose their asset or be forced to sell in a time that's not very optimal, um, where some investors may lose capital, but hopefully they at least get their initial capital back. But they just don't make a return, right? And so I think there's going to be some, some assets like that as we move forward into 2023. But from our overall, our, our portfolio is, is, is very strong. Um, we did recently move from a monthly, a monthly distribution, distribution cadence to a quarterly distribution cadence, cadence, primarily because we don't know what's going to happen in 2023. So are we going to have a higher increase in delinquencies? Are we going to have a lower occupancy? Um, is there, are people going to you know, stop not spending money? And so we wanted to make sure we had plenty of time to be able to make decisions around distributions and that schedule. And so we, we, we in, the, in, the, in the short term, we moved our entire portfolio off of monthly into a quarterly distribution cadence. And our goal is to get it back to monthly as soon as possible. Um, likely, you know, end of Q3 and a Q4 of next year is when we'll probably make that transition, depending on you know, what happens in the market. But we felt like that would be a wise thing for us to do to make sure that we're protecting investor capital because our primary goal is not to make a return for investors. Our primary goal is always capital preservation. That's the number one goal in what we do. The second goal is to make a nice, healthy return and profit. But we have to constantly go back to making sure that we can preserve investor capital. And that means changing the investor distribution cadence or possibly reducing distributions or, 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 uh, or eliminating distributions for a short period of time. Then, of course, that's what investors pay us to do is to make those, those, those high level and, and, and really kind of detailed, if you will, in the weeds decisions to make the best decision for the entire portfolio as a whole, not portfolio, but the entire property that they're invested in as a whole. And our investors also know that we're going to make the best decision for them because guess what? We're usually the largest investor in these properties. And so we have a significant amount of our own capital in it, which is also one of the reasons why in that red flags article, one of the red flags is that you should never invest with an operator unless they invest alongside you as an investor. You want to make sure that there's that, 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 that great alignment of interest by having their money on the line as well as your money on the line as they're continuing to manage the asset. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com 
slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% in APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. I'll put a link to the red flags guide that Dan's talking about here in the show notes. And so you guys could easily access it. Just scroll down, click the link. It'll bring you right to it. But how has that distribution change been perceived by investors? Have they accepted it with open arms? Have they been a little bit hesitant? What has that sentiment been like? I'll, I'll be completely frank and honest with you here, Rob, that I, I feel like we did, a, we, we, we did not communicate it as well as we should have to our investors. We sent it out in our monthly update to our investors, but we, we also shot a video ab- about the update with the three managing partners. But we, we, I feel like the messaging that we sent to our investors was, was probably not the best. Not probably. It wasn't the best. Um, and so we did have you know, a, large, a large number of investors reached out, but um, it was still less than about 6% of our investors that kind of reached out and said that they were either confused or they had some questions or whatever. But you know, pretty much everybody that we've talked to and we explained to them the reasons for that decision of changing the cadence of the distributions, they understood. They're like, you know what? I understand. I don't, I may, I may not like it and I don't like it either. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm the one else gets cash flow distributions every month, but when I make the decision to do quarterly, it's, it's now quarterly cadence. They say they might like the decision, but they understand the reasons behind the decision and why we made the decision. And they, and they realize that, you know, they, they have entrusted us to be able to make the best decision for all of the investors as, 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 a, as, a, as a unit, if you will. And so even those assets that are in floating rate debt options right now, pretty much all of them are at their interest rate caps. So we, we, we kind of have limited our exposure at that point. Um, but there are some assets that you know, we've, we've had to reduce distributions on because if you have an increase in debt service that eats into your cash flows and you can't make, make those distributions anymore or have to make a lower distribution. Um, but I will say that one of the things that has really helped us is that we, we learned early on that we always wanted to make sure we had a significant amount of operating reserves. So we basically have about four to six months of operating reserves in each one of our assets. So if the property goes down to 0% occupancy, we can continue to pay the expenses and the debt service for up to four to six months. And so the chances that happen is very remote. Um, but what that also allows us to do is that if there is any type of economic stress or strain or, or recession that is during the whole period of one of our assets, we have plenty of runway, usually between about 15 to 18 months of runway to be able to pivot and make changes during a recession. Because if you look back the last 100 years, 
the, most of those recessions that have occurred over the last hundred years have only lasted for more than, no more than about 12 to 18 months. And so we have enough, if we have enough operating reserves to get through a recessionary type environment, then we can do really well on the other end of that recession and be able to sell that asset and make a nice, a nice return for our investors. What is the standard for most LP positions? Aren't, aren't quarterly distributions pretty normal? So I would say that uh, for most operators, they do quarterly distributions. Um, we have always done monthly distributions and we, we do it because it's not that hard to do. Um, and if there's the cash flows are there, then why not distribute them on a monthly basis? Is it more costly um, so, for you? It's very minimal. I mean, I mean, I mean, for right, for the most part, it's actually not other than like there's just the labor of having somebody do that every single month. But we have an in-house finance team. We got, you know, I think six, six or seven people now that are part of the finance team now and manage all that for us. So, you know, there's not, it's, it's, it's not like it's a, it's a huge burden or anything. Um, and if they, and I say there's not any cost other than the labor because yes, the bank does charge us, but we get credits based on our, our, our balances on the accounts. And so we ended up essentially paying nothing for fees and, you know, wires and ACH and stuff like that. So it really is, is a, a, you know, there's no extra cost for us to do it monthly. Um, but what it does allow us to do is make sure our investors know that we're going to hit, we're going to be monitoring the, the accounts enough so that we can make those distributions on a monthly basis. And it also, from a marketing perspective, if you think about it from that, kind of put those lens on for a minute, that, that lens on for a minute. If we're hitting your bank account every single month, the next offering that we come become about or the next amount of time, the next time that you have money to place, who are you thinking about? The guy who only hits your account every quarter or the guy who's in your account every single month? And so you, if you can see those, 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 those wins getting into your account every single month, you want more of those wins, right? And so uh, we, we, we send those out electronically and then the investor get to see us. Then we have the next deal. We're, we're, we're top of mind for that investor. Yeah, I do. I do really like that. For full disclosure, for everybody listening, Stig and myself are both investors in PassiveInvesting.com, and I did like the monthly distributions. I got the the notice you said, the investor notice. I saw the video, etc. And I wasn't. I mean, it, it didn't personally bother me. I was like, you know what? Most most places do quarterly anyway. It's not really that big of a deal, you know. But like you, everything you said, it was nice to have the monthly while it was there. But again, it wasn't wasn't the end of the world for me when it when it went to quarterly. Right. Most most of our investors aren't living off their cat off the cash flows. Um, they like the cash flows because it helps them. Um, but it is, it's not necessarily a, you know, make or break as to whether they make their mortgage payment because they're, they're getting that cash flow payment. So we knew that there was going to be some investors that, that, that wouldn't, you know, like that, that change in the cadence. But, um, at the end of the day, we're, we're not making decisions on based on one investor's, you know, uh, thoughts or, or, or needs. It's, it's, it's the asset itself and the overall preservation of capital. And then again, secondarily making a nice, healthy return for our investors. So out of your whole portfolio, I know you have you have a couple different asset classes. You got self-storage, car washes, multifamily, you, know, you did some hotel stuff. Out of all of those different asset classes, what are you most worried about? What keeps you up at night out of those asset classes? And then which one are you not really worried about at all? What do you think is going to be the most stable? Honestly, to be, honest, to be completely frank with you, I don't, I don't lose sleep over any of these assets. I do get questions from investors, you know, before even, even this happened and even before COVID, like, how, how do you sleep well at night knowing that at this point in time, we have almost $600 million of investor private equity from investors just like us that are invested in our assets. Our average investment is about 126000 but we have about 1,800 investors. And so I tell people, like, I sleep really well at night. Like, I sleep like a baby. And they're like, how do you do that? Like, that would be like a lot of burden, stress to like manage that much money. And I will tell you that 
when I start to think about it, I can see how somebody can kind of get into that kind of state of like you know, being anxious. But honestly, we find really great quality assets and we feel comfortable putting our own capital into it. Um, usually seven figures or more of our own capital is put into each one of these deals. And so we sleep really well at night because we know we're, we're buying assets that are going to perform well during, during, during you know, many different types of recessionary environments. And so there's not really one asset class that I lose sleep over because I don't lose sleep over any of these. Um, they're, they're the ones that I would say uh, I think could, could do really well during this time is the car washes, um, the car washes and the self-storage. Because one of the things with self-storage is self-storage does really well during a recessionary environment because when people are having to downsize because they can't afford a, a larger house or a larger apartment and they're downsizing, and same thing with businesses. That's one thing that people don't realize. I think self-storage is just for personal stuff. There's probably more business-related storage needs than there is personal needs. So there's businesses that are downsizing from a you know two or 3,000-square-foot facility, and they don't need that big of a space. So in a recessionary environment, they'll move from that to like a 1,000 or 1,500 square feet, but they need somewhere to store all their stuff. And so, and sometimes it's like you know medical offices that need a place to store their files and stuff like that. And so they, 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 these types of storage facilities typically, typically try to typically lease up even more during a recessionary environment because people need a place to be able to store all their junk. And so that's a, that's a great asset class. And then, of course, with, 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 with car wash asset class that we're doing right now, we're doing only express car washes. So we're not doing self-serve or you know, kind of like the Breaking Bad style of car washes, I guess, if you think about that. We're doing what's called an express style. So these ones are ones where um, people probably, you probably have seen this before, where you drive up to the kind of stacking lanes, if you will. You go to the pay station. You swipe your credit card after selecting which wash you want, or you have a membership. And you go through, they load you, you stay in your car, you load, they get loaded onto the tunnel. You go through the tunnel on the other end, you get to use the free vacuums. We also have compressed air. We have uh, a microfiber towels and crevice tools and a glass cleaner. And, you know, a lot of those additional things that most car washes don't have, we like to add on as additional amenities to be able to attract um, people to want to use our facility instead of the, the car wash down the street. But the biggest thing with the car wash is that they are a lot of the, the, there's a, they're really heavily membership based, and so because we have that monthly recurring revenue and the, the memberships are not that expensive, they're anywhere between there are twenty, thirty, or forty dollars a month. And so to spend twenty dollars a month on your car to get it washed, even in a recessionary environment, people still have a car; they still want to wash their car, and they don't want to do it themselves. So for twenty bucks a month, be able to wash the car as many times as they want they're not going to just cancel their membership for that. And we saw that during COVID that memberships actually increased because it's one thing that they could do that was inexpensive. The kids love it. They, they like getting that. They like to have their, their car cleaned and it's 20 bucks a month. Right. And so it's a very low cost, um, you know, type of, type of, 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 uh, of, uh, of a, you know, product, if you will. And we actually pivoted from a monthly cadence from there, from doing a monthly $40 a month or 20 or $30 a month to a, Four week schedule. So now instead of having just 12 month pay period, we actually have 13 months because there's 13 four week periods during the year. And so we actually charge like 20, 30, or $40 for every four weeks. And so we get that extra, you know, a month during the year, um, because of that four week cadence in the, in the, in the schedule. But I would say that really all the asset assets, you know, I think are going to do really well, but. Um, I think so storage will be, you know, one of those ones that'll be, uh, uh, will outpace our, our underwriting. Um, all, and, and, and I think pretty much all of those, maybe might be you know, one or two that have floating rate debt, but most of those are fixed rate. Pretty much all of our, our car washes are fixed rate debt because it's done by local banks usually. And they don't usually do floating rate on those types of products. And same thing with the hotel. 
Um, but I think, you know, again, I, I don't sleep. I, I sleep really well at night, like a little, like a little baby. Um, sometimes it's hard to wake up in the morning, you know, cause I, I sleep so hard, but, uh, no, nothing really keeps me up at night. I think the portfolio is going to continue to perform well and we'll be able to survive this thing during, uh, for the, over the next, you know, 12 to 18 months and come out of it very strong and be able to sell some of these assets and, and make a good, nice, nice and decent return for our investors. How often, I know you're a car guy. How often do you use your car washes yourself? So oddly enough, I have a car that has a wrap on it. And so because I have a wrap on it, um, I, I can't go through our car washes. But um, my wife, she has a car that does not have a wrap on it. And so I'm, you know, I'm usually at least once a week, you know, driving her car some, for, some, for some reason. And so whenever we pass by one, I'm always like, let's go in there and then do another car wash, you know, because you also give away, you know, a free air freshener every time somebody comes in, they can hang in their, in their, in their, in their, uh, you know, their, on their visor. Which has our little kind of stormy mascot on there, and the, and the QR code to download our app and stuff. Um, and of course, the kids like to go through it too, so they're always like, "Let's go through the car wash." And so every time we have one, like from here, there's literally one like like less than a mile away. It's like half a mile from here, um, and so we're passing by it all the time, and we reuse it quite often. Funny, I live in New England, New Hampshire, and I was actually down in North Carolina, South Carolina area last year. I went through one of the car washes that you guys own, and when Stig and I were deciding which investment to go into we were considering the car washes i was like i've actually been through these i've seen them and we were considering the the self-storage as well i'm curious when it comes to the car wash when you offer this membership how much of the business and it almost sounds bad when you talk about it this way but like how much of the business is kind of predicated on somebody not using it so i heard this interesting story the other day planet fitness they set their prices so low so that people almost forget about it and that they just keep paying and they don't actually use it because each location will have tens of thousands of people that are members. And if they have that many people that, and they actually used it, it just wouldn't be possible. So they just forget about it because it's only 10, 15, 20 bucks a month. And so I'm curious how much of that is, is a part of it with the car wash. And then this also last question might be a little bit nitty gritty. Might have to talk to the operationals guys, but I'm curious. How many car washes does somebody have to use in a month before their $20 membership doesn't, you know, isn't profitable for you? Yeah. So I'll answer that. It's a great question. So, um, we have lots of data on that now. Now we have 20 locations and we have 10 deals, 10, 10 different assets under contract right now that we're going to be releasing a new car wash offering, uh, in, in January of 2023. Um, but we also are going to be releasing a new self storage deal, and you know we have a self storage deal right now that we're we're closing out for the, for the between now and the end of this year. Um, that uh, um, is is great from a, from a depreciation standpoint and tax benefits perspective. But when it comes to the memberships, the average person that gets a membership washes their car right at three times a month, and so it costs us not including the labor side of things because labor fluctuates based on the volume. Um, but just looking at like the chemical costs and the utilities and the other kind of things to keep the, the facility open, it costs us maybe two or three dollars to to wash a car. Um, so it's not very expensive. Um, and actually, we would prefer them to get used to washing their car more regularly so they get addicted to it. Um, but, he, but we do have quite a few members that sign up and they might go, you know, two or three months without washing their car. There, there is that 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 dynamic which helps us obviously from a cash flow perspective, but. We want them to continue to use us. We do some things that are member only type events. We have a whole 12 month kind of marketing calendar. You know, like, like, for example, in January, we're doing free car washes for all law enforcement on Mondays, which is one of our slowest days. So we chose Monday because of that. And if they show their, 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 their badge or they bring in their, their patrol vehicle, they can, they can wash their car with the category five wash, which is our top wash for free. 
Um, and so each month we have a different, you know, category of people that we are going to be doing that kind of a special with. Um, we also have uh, a membership promos and, you know, we're doing grand openings for all the different sites when we take them over. And so there's a lot of things that we do from a marketing perspective um, to be able to attract people into it. Um, and even in, in January, one of the other things I'm really looking forward to seeing the results of this is we're actually, we have a company that is making us uh, gift cards that are, they're not really fake gift cards because they actually are gift cards that have a balance on them. But then we'll, because I'll have a code on the back of it. But whenever you get a, like a little flyer in the mail or whatever, or like a Val pack and you just are flipping through and you see the coupons, you might take one and like save a coupon, but most of it you're just throwing away, right? If you do, you do the same thing when you have a postcard that comes in the mail, you just take it and just throw it away, right? Well, now we're going to be sending out these uh, gift cards or legit gift cards that have value to them, $10 on each one of them that they can apply to a car wash. And they were, our, our goal is to send out to all the people within a one to three mile radius um, around each one of the sites and give them these $10 gift cards so they can get in and come in and actually experience the wash for the, top, for the first time especially because we want to be able to be able to onboard onto the app. That's how they apply the gift card to their account and they can come into the wash to actually you know, get their car washed. But then they were getting people primed and ready and, and, and habituated to pollen season. So when pollen season comes, comes around, which is usually for us in the South, it's usually one of the biggest times of the year for us for car washes because there's so many people that have problems with it, like pollen getting on their car and they're washing it all the time. They want to wash it more frequently. And so our car wash volume tends to tick up you know, March through, through, I'd probably say March through like the beginning of June um, is really a big time for car wash. We're trying to do a lot of things to kind of prime ourselves so that we can get ourselves ready um, for that big push coming up in a couple months. What happens to those gift cards if they don't use them? What if somebody gets it in the mail and, and they just throw it away like a coupon? What happens to that? It doesn't do anything. It just, it just goes away. So they can't redeem it for cash. It's not like, it's like non-redeemable, but they can use it and they can pass it off to a friend. They can give it to somebody else. Um, they can use it for, for, for gifts. I mean, they can use it for a lot of different things because it'll actually look like a legit gift card. But you guys don't get charged. Like you're not taking money out of your bank accounts. So, so it's not like you're, they're throwing $10 out of the, out of the, you know, into the trash. Correct. So basically what they do is they sign up to our app online on, on the apps in the app store, whether it be on Apple or Android devices or whatever. And they download the app, they register for it. And then on, and there's a, they have like a little area called the gift cards or the wallet area. They can go in there. And it'll say, add the code. They can add their code and it'll automatically apply $10 credit. It's basically a, a promo code, if you will, that automatically applies $10 balance to their, to their, to their account when they actually punch the numbers in and, and sign up for the app. What, what I think is so interesting is you guys are real estate investors, but what everything we've just talked about with car washes is business operations. And that's such a different piece of car washes that you don't necessarily have. I mean, you do have ops with you know, multifamily self-storage, but it's just so different than with a car wash. You have an actual operating business that goes along with the real estate of car washes. So I think that's very interesting. How has your experience been with that? Do you like the business ops of the car wash or do you prefer something with like multifamily self-storage that doesn't have that business like retail component to it? Yeah, I I personally don't like the operations of it. I like doing it myself. We have a, we've had to build out our own property management team just for car washes because self-storage, hotels, uh, multifamily, all of those have third-party property management companies. But car wash, there was no, hey, would you manage my car wash? <laughs> they, it, it, just, it just doesn't exist. Um, and so we had to create our own property management company to be able to support these assets. And so we have already, we have a little over 200 people now that are working for us in the property management company across all of our sites. And so it's been 
quite quite a lot of operations that we've had to you know manage. Again, that goes back to the original thing about starting your own property management company. You're going to have those same complications in multifamily, just as you are with car wash. It's just a different product that you are selling. And I think a lot of people that get into this business, even if they're not doing car wash and they think that the operational side of things is, is going to be easy. And I'll say that the operational side is one of the most trickiest things to do, whether you're doing multifamily, hotels, self-storage, or, or of course, these express car washes. Express car washes do have a little more complicating factor because there's a lot of different moving parts to it. Um, and there's a lot of, and we have training manuals that we put together and we have onboarding training, we have, we have videos and then documents. And there's a lot of different checklists and things like that for people when they're opening and opening and, and closing and maintenance items. And there's a lot of different moving parts to it. But we, when we, when we moved into that, we started, started the car wash space. We brought on one of our man, one of our new managing partners for car wash, Cameron Broom. And he's been doing a phenomenal job managing that and, uh, and making sure that that, that, that runs smoothly and as, as well as when we, when we take over car washes too. What got you interested in car washes? Like what, we'll put it on your radar. Yes. It's actually quite funny. So I was, my wife and I were, uh, chartering a private jet to go to New York city to bring some friends out there just for the day to spend some time. It was for her birthday, um, that I did this and. We were, we were standing in the airport, I'm at the airport, you know, getting ready to load on the plane. And, uh, the guy comes out and he's like, Hey, do you see that jet over there? I'm like, yeah. He goes, that's a citation 10. He go, I'm like, yeah, I, I can tell that guy. I, I know my jets, you know, you, you can see my jets on the screen up here behind me. I said, uh, I was like, okay. Like, I'm, he goes, do you know who owns that? And I was like, well, well no, like I'm, I'm, I don't know people who buy, who own these random jets in Columbia, South Carolina. And, uh, and he goes, oh, that's the guy who owns the local Frank's car washes in town. I was like, you got to be kidding me. He's like, yeah. He goes, they wash over 200,000 cars a year. And that, that, that's, his, that's his jet. I'm like, wow. I'm like, what does he use the jet for? He goes, it's just for personal. He goes to Montana and, and hunts and, and he goes to Vegas every once in a while and you know, goes to a couple of ranches in Texas. <laughs> so I'm like, how does this guy have that much money washing cars? You know, and so it, it got me on a path of researching car washes and the cash flow and the opportunity there. And the nice thing about the industry right now is that it's very fractionalized. So there's not a lot of like major players in the space. There are a few, but nothing like you would see in like multifamily or self storage or anything like that. There's a lot of smaller mom and pop operators that have gone into the business over the last three to five years and they're ready to sell. And so what we've been able to do is buy these kind of portfolios, you know, two, three, four up to, so we've had, we had seven sites at this point that we've bought at one time that have allowed us to be able to kind of add to the portfolio. And the opportunity that I saw was that there's, there's high cash flow. So we offer a 10% preferred return on these investments. And then we set up the waterfall. So the investors like that are getting that, that those, those first fruits, right? And so the investors kind of get to capitalize on the cash flows during the whole period and also the nice pop on the back end. And our projections are based off, are very conservative and they're based off of basically selling the assets for around the same equity multiple that we bought it, right? Um, and usually these, these are, are sold off of an equity multiple off of the EBITDA, right? And so that's basically similar to NOI and, and, and real estate's the net operating income. So it's the net income, that EBITDA. There's a few other nuances to the EBITDA number, but for all intents and purposes, whatever that kind of um, net income is, it's an equity multiple off of that. And so some of these, some of these car washes, kind of the smaller mom and pop operators, you buy one, two or three at a time. You're going to pay, you know, seven to maybe 10, maybe upwards to 11 or 12 equity multiple on those assets. Well, our exit projections are usually only to sell them around like a 10 to 12x um, on an equity multiple based off the EBITDA. 
Well, there's been transactions lately that have happened that have had large portfolios being bought by private equity groups and publicly traded companies that, that buy these. And they have had, you know, 22, 23X. So it's really huge numbers that have been at these exit multiples. And so our goal is to be able to uh, build a portfolio where we have, you know, 150, 200, 300 locations. And then we turn around and actually sell it to a large private equity and roll it up to their portfolio and have a large exit for us as well as our investors at the same time. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% in APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. You think we're in the early days of car washes, kind of like we were in self-storage? I don't know exactly how long ago, but if you go back not that far, you know, not that long ago, there was self-storage was very fragmented. There wasn't a lot of big players in there. Now you have the life storages, et cetera, that are massive. But before that, I mean, it was all mom and pops. Are you seeing like the car washes kind of like the early days of self-storage? 
Yes, I, I would say I, I would say absolutely yes, that's correct. And I think what we're going to see over the next maybe say ten to fifteen, maybe twenty years, is this consolidation happening in car wash, and we're going to be part of that, right? Because we're consolidating right now, and then we're going to be consolidated and rolled up into another group that'll be even bigger, right? So for someone to be able to buy our portfolio of say two hundred locations, and they have three hundred, they can immediately go from three hundred to five hundred locations with one transaction. And they can get to where they want to go faster as well. And that's really what we're trying to kind of capitalize on is right now, it is fractionalized. We're trying to consolidate and we're not planning to sell in, you know, that lot that far out into the future, 10 to 15 years. But I feel like that there is a runway of probably 10, 15, 20 years within car wash until we get to the space where we are right now and sell storage, um, where there is, there is a lot more consolidation. But what, right, what we're seeing right now in car wash is that there is consolidation happening. We're going to be part of it. We're going, to, we're going to capitalize on it, and our investors are going to really be able to capitalize on it too. Have the investors been a bit harder to get on board with the car washes, just given that they're so different than, than other parts of real estate, or has it been pretty easy? I would say it's been fairly easy, and it's, and it's primarily because there's higher cash flows, right? So there's a higher cash flow during the whole period. There's a higher preferred return. And they have that potential for the nice pop on the back end. Now, when we underwrite these things, we're not underwriting them so that we're going to get this nice, you know, 30, 40, 50% return, right? Um, that's going to be an unrealistic expectation for investors to set up front. And so we actually, when we're underwriting it, we project it on a five year hold period that, and that we're going to get maybe between, you know, 20 to 22%, you know, return on there, maybe up to 25%. But really where we as operators make money is if we can really outperform the asset. And go way above 30, 40%. That's really what we're looking for is, is these assets that we feel like have a great uh, potential for being able to exit, the, exit them at even higher returns than what we're projecting. How are you thinking about markets these days? I know you're, you're in Texas, Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, that Southeast area, like you mentioned. Are you looking at going into any other markets or just given the climate of the real estate world, are you kind of considering just staying put, staying in the markets you know really well, kind of letting the dust settle before you go into some new markets? Sure. So from a multifamily perspective and a self storage perspective, uh, and even a hotel perspective right now, we are definitely staying in some of our core markets. We really like the primary markets. Uh, even though you pay a higher, I mean, a lower cap rate in those markets, you also have the opportunity to be able to sell with lower cap rates. And it's because of the higher competition, especially from an institutional perspective in those markets. When it comes to car wash, it's a little bit different or a little bit agnostic when it comes to the market, as long as there's the, 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 the market demographics make sense. So we, as far as the, the, with car wash, we need population density. We need car counts. We need a great location with traffic going by the property. It can't be on a secondary or tertiary road unless there's some way that like the traffic is being forced down that road. Um, so we want to make sure that we have an asset that can perform really, really well in a market and that there's not a lot of competition in that area as well. Or, or at least there's a, there's, a barrier, there's a lot of barriers to entry to be able to put up a shop across the street or beside us to be able to um, cause there to be you know, uh, issues with competition. Talked to another big operator a couple month or so ago, maybe a month and a half, and and he said he's entirely pencils down on underwriting for uh, acquisitions, development. He's pencils up. He is he's you know he's analyzing. He's ready to go. He's he's happy to do development, but he's not you know pencils down with with his underwriting. He's not looking to acquire anything right now. How are you guys approaching acquisitions? Yeah. Um, so I would say just to kind of speak to that as far as being pencils down, I think everybody has a different level of, of where they, they are from a, from a risk perspective um, and from where they are from a, from a market sentiments perspective. We always feel like there's an, there's an opportunity to be able to buy in any market cycle, no matter where you are. 
Um, I mean, you just think about that one deal that we just we actually just closed it about two weeks ago. That one we 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 were able to retrade for over six million. Well, most of the people that were bidding on that didn't even bid on it, or they just put in a bid and they didn't even make it. But we got it because we we stayed strong and put our offer in. We found out some things. We retraded, and they still got the deal, right? Um, so that extra, you know, six million plus that we got in the reduction in purchase price is just an additional six million that we're going to be able to capitalize on when we sell the asset, right? And so I, I don't, from an acquisitions perspective, I do feel like there's going to be, and we already are seeing it, a slowdown. Um, right now, we typically always see a slowdown in the Q4 of, of the year because people are slowing down for Thanksgiving and Christmas, and they hold deals and tee them up for the NMHC conference for for multifamily, and and then like the January and February of the following year. Um, but I think that we're going to see what we're going to start seeing in Q1 and Q2 is some of these deals that that were not underwritten very well, or they didn't buy these interest rate caps. And there's going to be people that are going to be, you know, going to be struggling. They're going to be struggling, and there's going to be awesome opportunity for us to. I never like to say there's going to be opportunity for us to go in and like steal deals. I feel like it's more because I I really have a have a have a have a pit in my stomach more for other operators that are not handling their investors properly. And I just feel for those investors that have put their hard-earned money with an operator and that operator is not handling it well. I just, I just you know, have a really hard time with that. And so if there's opportunities for us as a group to be able to go in and capitalize on some of these distressed deals and then hopefully, hopefully still save, save investors' capital um, and, and us as an, our investors be able to make some money, I think that, that can be a, a win-win uh, for both parties. But I will say that there's there's likely going to be some blood on the streets with some of these deals where there's going to be you know some some issues with some of these operators and investors are going to be upset and SEC is going to get involved and you know there's going to be some some turmoil out there. Um, I don't I don't wish it upon anybody, but I, I will say that I've already started to see it. We've already seen seen groups reach out to us. You know, hey, would you buy this deal from us at the price we bought it for three years ago? Because we're we're not doing well. We need you to save it. You know, and um and, and in some situations, you know, we, we hopefully we can do that, but. Sometimes there's situations where we're like, you know what, we we can't touch that at all. Like we we don't want to be a part of it. We don't want to be associated with it um, because we want to make sure that we can maintain the returns for our investors. We don't want to bring our investors into a deal that's failing just to cause it to potentially fail because some of their operator didn't perform properly on that asset. So I definitely think there's going to be some opportunities for acquisitions. We are also starting a full development arm to PassiveInvesting.com. So we just hired on, we just, strategically hired on a, a very important person that um, they'll be announced and released in January that will be um, you know, helping us as we move forward into 2023 and finding deals that uh, from a multifamily self-storage, uh, we already have two development sites under contract and underway breaking ground next month um, for car wash. So those two car washes uh, will be built out and by you know, July, August, they'll be, they'll be ready to turn the key on on those as well. So from a development perspective, yes, I like that. I think it's a great opportunity right now, especially where we are in the market cycle. But I think there's also going to be some existing assets that'll, that'll be able to be performing really well that we can capitalize on. By, and we are continually underwriting those projects as well. It'll just be fewer and far in between. Why do you think development's a good, good opportunity right now? Well, I think it's because there is, uh, there's a lot of, of profit in, 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 in development. It is, it is one of the riskiest investments because, you know, you may open up a facility and, and turn it on and, and nobody comes to wash their car or nobody comes to, uh, visit the hotel or, or, or rent self storage units or, you know, uh, rent a, a room in that for, for, for multifamily. But as long as you have done your due diligence properly and you've had a third party do a feasibility study to make sure that that, that decision to put it there is the right decision. 
the chances of it not performing well is, is pretty remote. Again, you, right now, if you were to put a shovel in the ground right now, you're going to be on the other end of the recession by the time it turns on anyway. And so you're going to basically be building something during the recession where most people are, 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 are like preserving and uh, hoarding capital and, and staying liquid. And if you can actually be the one that actually uh, starts to invest during these times, and on the other end of it, you have an asset that's ready to sell and you can sell it on the upswing of the market, I think that's really where, where, the, where the development is a great play right now. There is a an apartment multifamily uh, apartment complex near where I live that just went up and it's huge. I, I don't know exactly how many units it is. I don't know all the details, but I drive by it all the time. It's on the way to my parents' house and it's six, seven buildings. I'm guessing each building's probably close to 75 units, 100 units. Like It's a big facility and there's a lot of self-storage attached to it on the same thing. And it, the parking lot is empty. And it, it, every time I drive by, I look over and I'm like, you guys just can't in, like you're not filling like at all. There's they're not their lease up is not going well, and it's been open for months now. And I just it, the parking lot is just empty. Yeah. So I will say that self storage is a different beast because self storage is one of the longest lease ups of any asset class. So multifamily, you can usually lease those those things up pretty quick. Um, with with self storage, it can take up to twenty four to thirty six months to lease up a facility. But once you get it leased up, that's really where the capitalization is on it. Is is is, is making sure that you can buy an asset. And usually the target is 24 months. But once you turn the lights on, you get your CO, after you build something, you want to be able to have at least up within 24 months. But it does take a little bit longer, but there are, there are I've, I've even seen some car washes that are you know, boarded up and there's, they're, they're not there anymore and some pretty, pretty big names in it too. But I think a lot of it sometimes has to do with some of the other things that are happening in that market that you don't really see unless you actually have boots on the ground in that market too. You're going into car washes pretty hard. You turned on to it because of the guy that owned the jet. You like jets. Is that in your future? You uh, Is Dan Hanford going to have his own jet soon? So I, I would say that it is, it, it, it's something that we have researched quite a bit and, and, and done the kind of due diligence on like what the costs are and you know, be really balancing that with maybe say something with like net jets or other fractional ownership type of programs. And um, to be completely transparent with you, we're a NetJets owner now. So um, we, we do fly around with NetJets, but it's, it's it, unless you are flying over 400 hours a year in our estimations, it doesn't really make sense to own, the, own, to own a jet because you got to pay full-time pilots and you got all the vari- fixed costs and the variable costs and all this kind of stuff. And it just doesn't make sense at that point. Um, but when you can share it and have a fractional ownership, that's really, 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 really when it when it benefits you know you as a as a flyer because the biggest thing that I I like to use it for is when I got to speak at an event. Well, I want I want to preserve my family time as much as possible. And I do get invited to speak at a lot of different you know in person events, and a lot of them I turn down. But the ones that I do select, I make sure that I can speak on a Friday, so I can fly out there in the morning, speak, and, and then maybe spend a few hours there, kind of mingling and talking with people, and then fly back and still be home for dinner. Right, um, and that's really the biggest benefit with, with having the, the ability to fly you know, with, with private travel is the ability to get where you want to go faster. And for me, I'm in Columbia, South Carolina, so we always have layovers in either Charlotte or Atlanta um, or Dallas or, or Chicago or New York City. And so, when you have those kinds of connecting flights, you always have to have a connecting flight. It just adds so much more time, and I can't get home fast enough for that. Right. So, from that perspective, I would say that. I wouldn't. I would still say that I wouldn't put it past me that I would eventually, sometime in the future, own my own jet. But you have to get to the point where it doesn't make where where it, it, it 
you don't care that it doesn't make sense, right? <laughs> if that makes sense. You just have so much money that it that you don't care if it makes sense at all, right? Um, and that's kind of even from a fractional perspective, like you can't go, does it make sense for me to fly commercial or does it make some more sense for me to fly private? It's always going to make some more sense to fly commercial if you look at it just from the dollar perspective, but it's really how much is your time worth and how much is your time with your family I'm worth? Well, I know you got to that point where you just buy cars that you like without it really making sense. So I wouldn't be surprised if you got to that point. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if you got to that point with a, a plane eventually. But Dan, as we, as we wrap up here, I want you to tell us a bit about uh, MFINCon in Charlotte 2023. Uh, I saw you have Cialdini coming, had him here on the podcast. He was great. I love him. A-Rod, Mark King. Uh, last year, I was I was thankful to be able to go to the the conference and see Shaq, etc. So, tell us a bit about the conference you guys got going on, and uh, anywhere that people can can find you, connect with you, learn more about passiveinvesting dot com. Yeah, so uh, if you want to get some more information, more than what I'm going to share with you here, and, and what Rob's already shared uh, about the MFINCon, you can just go to MFINCon dot com, and you'll see the, the list of the speakers there and uh, and the celebrity speakers. Um, definitely, I'm looking forward to kind of rubbing shoulders and and, and meeting and, and interviewing A Rod on the stage. Um, that's going to be exciting. He actually has a large multifamily portfolio himself. Uh, we've invited Mark King on, who's the CEO of Taco Bell. He also used to be the uh, well, he originally was the CEO of TaylorMade, and then Adidas bought them. And that was the Adidas TaylorMade, and he was the CEO of Adidas TaylorMade and grew it to the largest golf company in the world. And then he retired there and got recruited by Taco Bell or Yum Brands to actually come in um, and uh, and and actually you know uh, take over the as the CEO of Taco Bell. So yeah, we're really excited about having him coming in and I'm able to talk a lot about leadership. And then of course, Dr. Robert Cialdini is great. Um, he's he's uh, he's one that I've been I kind of I kind of like a fan of his for for, for many many years. I always his book Influence the Art of Persuasion is one of my all-time favorite business all-time favorite business books and I call it a business book even though it's really not a business book it's all about like like a human social psychology and how people think and all the studies that have, that he has done himself um but I I'm really looking forward to having him on stage and rubbing shoulders with him and um he's going to be able to speak directly with our team as well um about different different um things that we're working on so it's going to be a great event with the celebrities we'll have, we'll also have um 40, 50, maybe 60 speakers around multifamily. We're also going to have, have, have some, uh, some speakers talking about self-storage and our car washes and the hotels. And it's not just around PassiveInvesting.com. It's really, if you're listening and you're interested in maybe doing some of this actively, it's great for you to learn how to do it on the active side as an operator and how to do it the right way. But it's also a great place for passive investors to go to learn and, and maybe even meet some other operators that are, that are doing things the right way and uh, be, able to, be able to create some of those connections. Plus, of course, you get to meet me, right? So, of course, I'll be there. Um, you get to be able to rub shoulders with everybody. I um, mean, it's, it's a great opportunity to be able to network with other high-level people. The tickets are not cheap. Um, I mean, I, I think they're cheap um, just because I know the value that we're providing to people, but the tickets are not cheap, but we're not trying to put on a cheap event and just sell you a bunch of, bunch of, bunch of things during the event. We don't do any sales pitches during the event at all. Um, except for trying to sell you to come to the next one the next year, right? Um, but we don't, we don't have programs we sell. We don't have back-end coaching programs. It's really about connecting great quality speakers and the celebrities and providing content that will allow you to, be able to set yourself up for success uh, when it comes to investing passively, but also if you are thinking about maybe doing this actively at the same time. And then I guess the other way you can reach me is through PassiveInvesting.com. You go to the website, PassiveInvesting.com. On the top right-hand corner, there's a big blue button that says, Join the Passive Investor Club. Click on that, fill out your information, 
One of our team members will reach out to you, discuss your investment goals, and make sure our group is the right fit for you. And if you want to just follow me further, you can certainly do that as well. You can go to uh, linkwithdan.com. That just brings you straight over to my LinkedIn profile. So you can connect with me there on LinkedIn. And that's just linkwithdan.com. I highly recommend the conference and checking out PassiveInvesting.com to invest. I've been to the conference. I had a great time. I invest with PassiveInvesting.com. Stig does as well. All been a really great experience. Dan's great. His team is great. I highly recommend everybody listening goes and checks that out. Dan, thanks so much for your time again today and uh, look forward to catching up again soon. You as well, Rob. Thank you for having me again. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.